Captain Jack Harkness, played by the redoubtable John Barrowman, made his debut in the Doctor Who story The Empty Child in the middle of Christopher Eccleston's tenure as the Doctor. He was an omnisexual time traveller and a thing of great joy, adding greatly to the season. Eccleston's a great actor, but he's a little doer, something he himself has admitted. He feels his attempts at humour during his time as the Doctor are cringeworthy. And whilst I don't agree with him, thinking his performance as the character is one of the series' best, I can see his point. Barrowman's portrayal of Harkness was a breath of fresh air, though, adding humour and a sense of during do to the show. Harkness was very popular, mostly due to Barrowman's ebullient performance, and it was quickly announced he would be getting his own spin-off show. It's a testament to how popular Doctor Who was when Russell T. Davies was running it that it spawned two spin-offs, both of which were successful, whereas the original run ran 26 years and gave us one episode of K-9 and Company. As compelling as it may have been to give us the Captain Jack adventures, this wasn't on the cards. This series would be Torchwood, an anagram of Doctor Who. Torchwood was first seeded into the public consciousness throughout the second season of Doctor Who, David Tennant's first season as the Doctor, and actually season 28 if you're a real pedant, where we learned Torchwood was a secret organisation designed to obtain alien tech for use in possible defence and even future attack situations. Set up by Queen Victoria, Torchwood ran a few offices, with the focus of the series, Torchwood 3, being in Cardiff. Torchwood 4, in a possible nod to Babylon 5, vanished, but Captain Jack is certain it'll show up one day. I think we're still waiting for that, to be fair. Torchwood was the first spin-off show to be aimed at a different audience than its parent show. Prior to this, spin-offs tended to target the same demographic, for example, Cheers and Frasier, Buffy and Angel and the $6 million man and the Bionic Woman. Davis recognised, though, that Doctor Who fandom was a broad church, and as such could sustain a show aimed at an older audience. Even when he resurrected Doctor Who in 2005, he aimed the show at a teen and older family audience than the original, which was perceived, at least for the first 15 years of its run, as a children's show. Davis was smarter than most of the people who did this, though. Compare Torchwood's assured and moody debut to that of Star Trek Discovery, or even Picard, shows which try far too hard to be adult. Davis also didn't double down like those two shows. Whilst Torchwood was aiming for an older audience, the popularity of Jack with younger fans and tweens meant Davis quickly toned down the swearing and the sex, but left the tone of the show relatively intact. Crucially, this is because Davis never dumbs down his writing. Sure, the swearing felt unnecessary, as it does in Picard and Discovery, and we didn't miss it when it was phased out, but Davis continued to write smart stories populated with recognisable people. He does this in all of his writing, be it for Doctor Who, Queer as Folk, or Years and Years, and he brings this approach to Torchwood. Amusingly, he has said in an interview that the BBC would not allow him to refer to it as Doctor Who for adults. Barrowman happily returned to the role of Harkness, but the rest of the ensemble was mostly new characters not seen in Doctor Who, and would actually be set in the filming location of Cardiff, rather than pretending to be somewhere else every week. This removed the need to make Cardiff look like London, New York, or an alien world, and although this did result in helicopter shots that tried to make Cardiff look sexy, they didn't really pull it off. Cardiff's a nice place, but it's not sexy. 
Added to the cast were Eve Miles as Gwen Cooper, Byrne Gorman as Owen Harper, Neko Mori as Toshiko Sato, Indira Varma as Susie Costello, and Gareth David Lloyd as Ianto Jones. One of these things is not like the others. The first episode of Torchwood is more hit than miss. Despite not being a pilot in the true sense of the word, a full season was commissioned before cameras even rolled, so this episode didn't have to sell the series, the first episode does function in that role of pilot episode. Structured very much like Davis's first episode of Who, Rose, the first episode of Torchwood, entitled Everything Changes, focus on Miles's character of Gwen Cooper. Initially a Cardiff copper, she blunders upon a Torchwood investigation and, being a tenacious sort, she starts digging into Torchwood and what it is. Slowly, she makes an impression on Jack who takes her into his confidence, especially after there is a betrayal in the ranks. With the traitor exposed, Jack offers Gwen a job and the series sets off with newbie Gwen taking the role of surrogate viewer, escorting us through the wild and wacky world of Torchwood as she herself discovers exactly what it is and what it entails. As with most new things, the fans were dismissive of Torchwood at the time, but I enjoyed it from the start. Mostly. I'll get to those problems later. This is largely due to the assured and confident opening episode. Everything Changes is well shot by director Brian Kelly, and the characters are well defined from the get-go. Davis was influenced by Buffy's spin-off Angel, which was originally pitched as being darker and more adult than Buffy, a promise that series never really fulfilled, but the intent was what Davis carried over. Torchwood was a little more explicitly violent than Doctor Who, as befitted the show's post-Watershed time slot, but it's the characters that benefited from the more adult treatment. Gwen is allowed a boyfriend and a sex life, even if Jack is less of a Jack the Lad here than he was in Doctor Who. He's more serious in Torchwood, more hardened. All of the Torchwood characters are hardened and actually not very nice people, with the exception of Ianto Jones, who's pretty much what you see what you get in the first instance. Owen Harper, for example, is flat out unlikable, a novel and dangerous tack to take when introducing a new show, and actor Byrne Gorman revels in playing a bit of a bastard. All three of the main characters that aren't Jack or Ianto are up to something, using Torchwood tech for their own purposes, although only Owen is outright scummy in his misuse of the equipment. Owen is using an alien perfume to convince people to have sex with him, date rape by any other name, and he's pretty unrepentant about it. Tosh is using a device to scan books, which is pretty low-key in the grand scheme of things, but Susie is using a resurrection gauntlet to learn how to resurrect people permanently after they have died. At the moment, she can only do it for two minutes. Whilst Owen is reprehensible, he isn't killing people, which is what Susie is doing, in her efforts to learn how to better use the glove. Only Tosh isn't harming anyone, and it's probably no surprise that she becomes the most identifiable member of the team after Gwen and Ianto. Owen will work his way through most of Team Torchwood and is undeniably a sexual predator. I can't decide if it's incredibly brave to have one of the main characters be an irredeemable sex pest, or just stupid. I doubt he'd made the grade if the show was made today. All of Team Torchwood have secrets, including Jack. Apart from Gwen, no one knows he's essentially Captain Scarlet, a similarity not lost on John Barrowman, who, as a massive science fiction fan, loved this comparison. The actual plotline to episode one is pretty thin, 
Early on, we are introduced to the Resurrection Gauntlet. It's what brings Gwen into the plot. And later on, we learn Susie is doing experiments with it, essentially playing a god. Susie fears Gwen will remember everything, even after Jack mind-wipes her. Which, of course, she does, or we've no series. And Susie is willing to shoot Jack in the head, and is about to kill Gwen to keep her secrets. Of course, Jack resurrects, and Susie kills herself. I mentioned earlier that one of these things was not like the other, and that is Indira Varma. In the biggest nod to the shows of Joss Whedon, actor Indira Varma was in all the pre-publicity photos, listed in the opening credits as a regular, and even billed as a star of the show in production publicity, all to keep her death a secret. The plot being deliberately skinny means that most of the running time is devoted to setting up the characters and the premise, which it does very well. We may not like some of them, but by the end of the 50 minutes we feel like we know them. Gwen is clearly being set up as the empathetic one, as Torchwood is an organisation, and the people staffing it are clearly not good guys, even if they are working on the side of the angels. It's Gwen's job to remind them that they're dealing with real people and real people's lives. One thing I did find amusing as a comic book fan was that the drug Jack gives Gwen to mindwipe her is called retcon. Nods to Doctor Who abound, from Jack mentioning that he needs the right kind of Doctor, to references to the Battle at Canary Wharf and the invasion of the Sycorax, as well as the Doctor's hand lopped off in the Christmas invasion, being stored in the Torchwood hub. People who whine about the BBC's woke agenda now mustn't have watched Torchwood, in which Owen engages in a threesome with another man and a woman in the first episode. Sex plays a huge part in the series, with the second episode, day one, being all about sex and how advertising exploits both men and women to sell its products. It plays very much with the modern idea of fluid sexuality, 15 years before anyone else was doing it. If you are only just now moaning that every TV show is doing this, you haven't been paying attention. By the end of the first season, every character in the show has had a same-sex relationship, as well as one with the opposite gender. For the most part, everything changes, keeps the interest, and moves along at a decent clip. There's a silly moment in the middle where Jack is just stood on top of a tall building just because it looks cool, but looking cool's not a sin. And if you're trying to sell your show, John Barrowman stood on top of a building while a helicopter swoops around him is undeniably an iconic image. Torchwood launched on BBC Three, with episodes one and two airing back-to-back as a 100-minute movie, even though nothing really connects them together. Episode two, as I mentioned, called Day One, is written by Chris Chibnall and focuses on Gwen's first full day on the job. It's not as good an episode as the opener. The idea is interesting. An alien sex monster fuels up on orgasm energy, and it could have really focused on the sex-obsessed culture in which we live. But other than a scene where the antagonist, Karis, is walking through town bombarded by sexual advertising imagery, it's largely a missed opportunity. It's hard not to compare this episode now to Netflix's Sex Education, which essentially deals with the same issue, teenage sexual obsession, and wish that Torchwood had had a bit more of a sense of humour about it. Apparently the original script was a lot funnier, but that was all cut out in favour of a rather po-faced exploration of sex that we got here. Unlike episode one, which doesn't feel like it's trying too hard to be adult, despite a few F-bombs, this does feel very much like they're doing this story because they can. There's a strangely unerotic sex scene in a club toilet, 
never the sexiest place in the world. People wanking, an ultra scumbag Owen filming Gwen and Caris's under-the-influence same-sex kiss because he's a massive prick. The whole episode wants to be about how sexualized society is despite our innate prudishness and how terrified we apparently are of our children seeing sex and nudity. But it never pulls it off. Sex education does handle this topic far better, albeit it's 15 years later now, so there's a lot less restrictions on what you can do on television, especially with streaming. The best scene in the show has nothing to do with the plot, but is actually a character moment where the Torchwood team sit and eat Chinese food and gossip about Jack. Turns out Team Torchwood know nothing at all about their leader. Owen thinks he's gay, Tosh thinks he'll shag anything if they're beautiful, and Ayanto doesn't care either way. Okay, maybe Tosh knows him fairly well. The Ghost Machine is episode 3 and by Helen Trainer, and sees Team Torchwood acquire a device that allows them to see visions of the past and the future. Owen becomes emotionally involved when his vision shows him a young girl being murdered by a teenage boy in the 1940s, and he's determined to track down the man who did it, who, for 60 years, has gotten away with the crime. The Ghost Machine's a solid entry. It's MacGuffin, is something that could easily slot into an episode of The X-Files, or Buffy, or even Friday the 13th the series. But the episode deserves credit for taking the previously unappealing and irredeemable Owen Harper and making him more sympathetic. He's still a twat, but his identification with the victim and his obsession with bringing her killer to justice 50 years later is well done and exceptionally well realised by Byrne Gorman. Sadly, it's Tosh's turn to be underdeveloped. Both Gwen and Owen experience the visions, which allows a glimpse into their character. But poor Ianto is merely the T-boy once again, and Tosh just presses some computer buttons. Gwen's realisation that the job may cost her more than just time is quite sad. But she's also totally flirting with Jack, and the scene where he teaches her to shoot is loaded with sexual tension, including a moment where both she and Jack climax together. Seemingly, no one has a monogamous relationship in Torchwood, and its impact on the lives of its employees is a running theme, as is loneliness. In this episode, we learn Jack lives in the hub and has no need to sleep, and he seems to be substituting human interaction for an obsession with work. It's here Torchwood is missing the mark. We fell in love with Jack Hartness because he was irreverent and fun. Here he's doer and moody. Rog Blake himself, actor Gareth Thomas, shows up as the elder version of the murderer. And the location photography is still wonderful, but no amount of glamorous photography can hide the fact that some of Cardiff is a bit of a dump. Cyberwoman by Chris Chibnall was next up, and is as lurid as the title suggests. The reason Ianto has been largely relegated to the role of T-boy and pleasant face about town is explained. He doesn't want to be noticed. See, like everyone else who works for Torchwood, Ianto is a very naughty boy and has been secretly helping his girlfriend, Lisa, who was turned into a Cyberman, sorry, Cyberwoman, during the Battle of Canary Wharf at the end of the second season of Doctor Who. I'll give it to Ianto, his disguise, essentially Clark Kenting his way through life, is pretty inspired. No one really pays attention to the people who make the tea or sweep the floors, so his guise as Torchwood's concierge is pretty damned convincing and his motivations are strong. Ayanto isn't wrong when he points out that Torchwood is a reprehensible organisation. They do what they want, seemingly unmonitored. They make their own rules and follow their own agenda. 
We, as an audience, turn a blind eye to it, as they are the point-of-view characters. But they don't seem like good guys. Conversely, they are probably more realistic in terms of the real-world application of Black Ops units, and it's quite brave to make the premise of the show also the antagonist. The visualisation of the Cyberwoman, though, owes a lot to the pulp science fiction of the 50s and 60s, deliberately, according to Russell T. Davis, mostly winking at cyberpunk and the covers of magazines such as Startling Stories and Science Fiction. However, whilst it may work beautifully in paint, it just looks ridiculous in reality. The Madonna-esque pointy boobs, the burr midriff and thighs and the stupid high heels, all of which should be erotic, are just daft. God bless the cast and actor Caroline Chikizi, who, as Lisa, managed to play all of this with straight faces. The script works better in its more ambiguous moments. Ayanto calling Jack out on him being a monster is a nice touch, and both Ayanto and Jack have valid points. Ayanto believes Lisa can be saved, but Torchwood would never agree to helping her because they live to destroy. Jack conversely knows she can't be saved. She's cyber now, but feels that Torchwood serves a valid purpose with its methods, even if they are sometimes over the top. Case in point, the ending. In a remarkably stupid moment, Lisa manages to transplant her brain, somehow, into the body of the poor pizza delivery girl. This is achieved off-screen, apparently, in a matter of minutes. Not only is this as daft as hell, it's also yet another death on Torchwood's conscience. But if Lisa could do this, why the hell did Ayanto not get one of the many bodies that Team Torchwood seemed to rack up every week and use that? How did she pull off the brain transplant with only a few minutes? How did she have the skills and capability to do it? It gets worse. When Owen and Jack arrive, rather than try and see if Lisa could perhaps be reintegrated into humanity now she's human again, they just shoot her. Lisa was converted by the Cybermen, the bad guys, and as such, whilst we feel sympathy for her, her conversion and death aren't really on us. That poor pizza delivery girl, named Annie in the credits, had a family, a mother, a father, brothers, sisters, maybe a child, and Jack and Owen casually shoot her multiple times. And these are supposed to be the heroes. Jack even has the gall to get all holier than thou with Ianto at the end, despite him being culpable in a number of innocents' deaths so far in the series. And we're only on episode four. Later on, this will be even more egregious when Jack sacrifices a child for the supposed greater good. I found my mind wandering throughout Cyberwoman, and as such, I started questioning what I was seeing. Sadly, with Cyberwoman, the more one does that, the less it holds up. Jack lives in the hub. He told Gwen that last episode. So when did Ianto get Lisa and all the cyber equipment in there? Did Jack not notice Ianto spending lots of times in the basement? There's also lots of convenient writing, such as the comms going down, so the characters are out of touch, until we need the Cyberwoman to find them, and suddenly Gwen's phone magically has a signal. Speaking of being four episodes in, is Torchwood a secret organisation or not? Because they continue to get pizzas delivered to them, under the name Torchwood, and they continue to show up at police investigations and such, and are just waved through. 
Still, the, the real remit can't be known to the public, even though in this era of Doctor Who, alien invasions were well known. Owen continues to be a reprehensible sex pest, kissing Gwen when they look like they're going to die, a moment she indelicately points out can't have been that spur of the moment as she felt his hard on pressing against her. Subtle. Again, poor Tosh is neglected, doing little more than pressing buttons and talking on the comms. Cyberwoman is good on a character level and at asking hard questions, but the actual story is pretty weak sauce. Small Worlds was written by Peter J. Hammond, better known for creating Sapphire and Steel, and that's quite apparent in watching this one. Dealing with ancient folklore, the Cottingley Furries incident, this is a slow-burn horror story that focuses on Jack, throwing some light on his past as well as providing a genuinely creepy monster. The original mystery saw young girls in 1917 taking photos of what they said were furries. Arthur Conan Doyle was convinced. Harry Houdini, not so much. But the legend persists to this day, partially because although the girls admitted to faking the photos, they went to their graves swearing they had seen real furries. Hammond takes this idea and runs with it. He weaves the story of the furries around the death of Jack's troop back in 1919 with an old friend of Jack's, Estelle, who knew his father in World War II, and these malevolent beings from the dawn of time, and he does it adeptly. It's a curious brew, essentially taking a Highland approach to Jack's history and applying a dose of real-life British mythology to it, but it works exceptionally well. It turns out Jack was Estelle's lover, not Jack's father, and Jack has a personal connection to the furries who slaughtered his comrades. The sepia-tinted flashbacks are well done, and it's the first time Torchwood feels like a fully developed and genuinely adult science fiction drama series. Furry tales have always had a tinge of the terrifying to them, hence being called grim, and Hammond milks this for all it's worth. Kudos as well to the score and the direction for creating a genuinely unnerving piece of work. To add some present-day drama, Hammond adds in a small child, Jasmine, who befriends the furries, and they save her from a predatory paedophile and school bullies. There's few tears to be shared for the pedo, but the furries don't distinguish between him and the bullies, meeting out vengeful justice on small children as well as predatory adults. Yasmin's stepfather is also targeted. To be fair, he is portrayed as a bit of a knob, but he's not necessarily evil. Sadly, the Chosen One narrative is ladled onto Jasmine, which explains why Jasmine is important to them, but it's terribly played out nowadays. Ah well, at least Team Torchwood don't have daddy issues. Yet. Jack's solution to let them take Jasmine, once again emphasising he's not a good man, crushes poor Jasmine's mother, who loses her fiancé and child in the same day. Another casualty of Torchwood's callousness. Even the rest of the team feel that Jack was harsh here. It's an ambiguous and audacious choice to take with your lead character, and it gives the viewer Torchwood's best episode yet. Countryside, like Suicide, by Chris Chibnall, takes its cues from films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills of Eyes, and other genre TV like The Benders episode of Supernatural, and the trio of morons from Buffy's sixth season, in that it postulates that no matter what alien entities Team Torchwood encounter, man will always be the worst creature out there. 
It's a well-directed little horror movie, but highly derivative. Once you know that Silent Green is people, it's only the suspense and the acting that keeps this one going. Fortunately, the cast are so damn good. Game of Thrones' Owen Teal is the bad guy, and he delivers a one-note performance, although he's not really given much in the way of a character. There's no real motivation for him at the village to do this every ten years, because the portrayed is cannibals, so surely it'd be a constant thing. I also didn't buy the romance between Owen and Gwen, as she seems far too smart to go for a slimy bastard like Owen. What is good is Gwen's inability to understand why people do this to other people. Sorry, Gwen. It's a question that's been pondered for decades and we're still no closer to an answer. The beautiful Daniela Denby-Ash, best known for the BBC sitcom My Family, guest stars in Greeks Burring Gifts by Toby Whithouse. She's an alien prostitute who's over 200 years old and in possession of a pendant that allows the wearer to read people's minds. She hits on Tosh in a bar and the two embark upon a relationship. However, Denby Ash's character, Murray, is playing mind games to achieve her goal. To gain a transporter to send her back to her homeworld. The transporter being located in the Torchwood Hub. Greek's Burring Gifts is reminiscent of another Buffy episode, this time Earshot, where Buffy gains the ability to read minds, although it's a common trope in science fiction, from Philip K. Dick's Minority Report, The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester, and Dying Inside by Robert Silverberg. In comics and films, mind reading is a fun power. In the books, it's a curse, and such it was for Buffy and here, Tosh. It's a lovely showcase for Naoki Mori, who rises to the challenge of having an episode built around her. Tosh is a lovely character, a thoughtful introvert with hidden depths. For reasons I cannot comprehend, she fancies Owen and is desperately lonely. Murray feeds on this, giving Tosh joy. Again, this is non-too-subtle subtext in Torchwood, and again, I can only assume the YouTubers whining about the current iteration of Doctor Who didn't watch this show. Maybe they're not real fans. Maybe I should gatekeep them. <laughs> The focus on Tosh means the other characters are left to be playful. Owen and Gwen are being none too subtle about their affair, and their thoughts about Tosh are both delightful and heartbreaking. Owen is still a tosser, but the banter between he and Gwen is genuinely amusing. The theme, though, is what do people really think of us? And given Torchwood's incredibly cynical and atheistic view of humanity, what do they think about at all? Mankind's depravity, the secrets, self-obsession and loathsome nature is all up front for Tosh to experience, and as with Buffy, it's unpleasant and is driving her mad. Torchwood's nihilistic view of humanity is bleak, and fits in with 2020 more so than it did on its initial airing in 2006. Morality and how it works in a universe where death leads nowhere and man is driven by carnal lust and cravings plays a lot into Torchwood episodes. I fall into that category because I would totally have fallen under Murray's thrall, especially given the sultry performance by Denby Ash. Torchwood is quite successful exploring how humans really are vile, unpleasant creatures. It forces us to look at ourselves and acknowledge that we aren't paragons of virtue, that there are no heroes, and we're all driven by baser needs. It's a very different kind of science fiction television. Despite the aliens and technology, it's probably a far more realistic depiction of humanity, a virus with shoes, as Bill Hicks once said. Proving the point, Jack murders Murray. He may have his reasons, but it's murder, 
pure and simple. Just because he's the protagonist doesn't mean he's the hero. Tosh, by contrast, is still the most likeable member of the team, especially now that Gwen is engaged in this affair, fully knowing that what she's doing could very easily crush her boyfriend, Reese. Gwen self-reflects on her actions, and a conversation with Tosh is one of the few genuine moments between the characters. The ability to acknowledge when we are wrong, when we are hateful or manipulative, when we are being assholes to people, when we show a complete lack of compassion for others as long as we're okay... When we recognise that and try to change, maybe there's hope for us yet. Greek's Burring Gifts is a solid entry, with a lot to chew on. They Keep Killing Susie, written by Dan McCullough and Paul Tomalin, sees the return of Indira Varma as Susie Costello, Jack's second-in-command from the first episode. A series of grisly murders leads Team Torchwood to using the Resurrection Gauntlet to bring back Susie, as she seems to have a connection with the victims. However, it's all an elaborate plot by Susie, a plot which may cost Gwen her life. Susie Costello isn't a character crying out to be brought back to life, especially being as she was created to die in the first place. Maybe if we'd seen her in action for a few episodes before killing her, we'd cur but there's nothing endearing about Susie. No reason to cur if she lives or dies. Maybe if Susie had shown the slightest amount of remorse that her resurrection was killing Gwen, there'd have been some ambiguity to the story, but she never does. Gwen shows Susie nothing but kindness, and Susie repays this by being petulant and unpleasant. We already have one hateful bastard on the team in Owen Harper. We don't need another. As such, they keep killing Susie as a runaround. The theme of the show, that Torchwood is seductive but it will ultimately kill you, plays out in, in any number of other episodes. And learning that Susie is also a notch on Owen's bedpost is just a head-scratcher. What the hell do these intelligent, beautiful women see in this utter twat? He's deeply unpleasant, a lech, a creep, bitter and twisted, and yet everyone on the team has either fallen into bed with him or wants to. The problem with scripts like this, as with films like The Dark Knight and Skyfall, is it requires the villain to have an almost preternatural ability to plan exactly how people will react in any situation. When we learn Susie had this planned, I just start wondering how she could do that. How could she know Gwen would act this way when she barely knew Gwen? Certainly the rest of the team wouldn't have done this for her. In the first episode, she was struggling to get a corpse to resurrect for more than three minutes. How could she have known permanent resurrection was possible? Yes, that's what she was experimenting with, but she didn't have any clue that it would actually work. Why go to all this trouble anyway? Why shoot yourself in the head in the first place? Surely this plan would have been much easier to engage with if you were still alive and maybe just in Torchwood cells. As with Cyberwoman, the story unravels when the viewer starts asking questions. Once again, it's the characters that save the episode. The police have learned to loathe Torchwood, so Jack having to go crawling to them for help after they are locked in the hub is funny, and there's some nice banter. Jack is a sex pest, just like Owen, only not as reprehensible, sleeping with yet another member of the team, in this case Ianto, and if Torchwood had an HR department, I'm sure he and Owen would be reported to them at some point. Just because it's reciprocated doesn't mean it's not sexual harassment in the workplace. They keep killing Susie whiles away the time, and it isn't boring. 
It once again concerns itself with Torchwood's pet themes of morality and living life, but it's not a great episode. What is a great episode is Random Shoes by Jaquetta May. Eugene Jones is a dreamer, a man always waiting for things to happen rather than making them happen. He's also in possession of what he believes is an alien artefact, something he tries to bring to Torchwood's attention. Sadly, Torchwood, being the arrogant assholes they are, ignore the poor lad. But when Eugene is killed in a suspicious hit and run, Gwen takes the time to investigate and get to know this lonely boy, who she just ignored previously. She doesn't realise that she has an assistant in her quest. The ghost of Eugene Jones. Random Shoes has a number of elements that make no sense when you think about it. The random shoes of the title are a little MacGuffin, and Eugene is a bit dense going to meet someone for the 15 grand he made on eBay from auctioning the alien artefact. He should have just let PayPal handle it. But this is an episode where none of that matters. In a dark, nihilistic series like Torchwood, Jaquetta May pens an episode about life and not letting life pass you by. I found myself being drawn into the life of Eugene in an affecting and emotional way. Like Gwen, I grew to like the kid. After episode upon episode about the futility and misery of life, to have an episode be life-affirming is lovely. It's a story about exploring life, not in a trite, seize-your-dreams way, something I always found eye-rolling and tedious, but in an everyday way. Go on that holiday you've always wanted. Well, when we're all trapped in isolation, anyway. Tell that person that you love them. Have an ice cream. Do the everyday things that make you happy, because tomorrow you could literally be run over by a drunk driver. And such is it with Eugene. He's killed not by the alien artefact, but by a drunk driver. It's mundane and normal and, well, life and death. The early part of the series dealt with loneliness, and it's nice to see that topic not forgotten. Around this, Torchwood are still assholes. They ransack Eugene's bedroom for clues, leaving his poor mum bereft. Owen is, as usual, a fucking dickhead of the highest order, and the complete lack of concern for people is appalling. Only Gwen has an ounce of empathy and compassion, and I eagerly await Torchwood getting their comeuppance. Random Shoes is a beautiful piece of fiction. A huge surprise, but a welcome one. Out of Time by Catherine Tregena is an off-concept episode in which Team Torchwood encounter a small twin-engine aeroplane landing in Cardiff. Nothing unusual about that, except the plane launched in 1953. It's up to the team to help the pilot, Diane Holmes, and her passengers, 45-year-old businessman John Ellis and 19-year-old Emma Louise Cowell, to adjust to life in 2007. Out of Time has moments of sublime beauty. And like other high-concept, off-piste genre offerings like The Inner Light on The Next Generation, Carbon Creek on Enterprise, or The Zeppo on Buffy, it revels in the fact that it doesn't have to follow any set formula. Each of the characters are teamed up with a Torchwood member, Jack with John, Emma with Gwen, and Diane with Owen, and each learns from the process. Gwen and Emma strike up the most believable friendship, Gwen adopting a big sister approach to teaching the 50s ingenue about sex in the 21st century. It's Emma who benefits the most from this story, her arc taking her from doe-eyed teen with no ambition other than to marry, to being a free-thinking, truly liberated woman with ambition and optimism to spur. It's a nice change to see someone happy in Torchwood, and it's nice to see Torchwood actually help someone for once. 
For misery, there's John's story. A poor man who can't cope with the future and the fate of his son and who Jack lets down spectacularly. John becomes suicidal and Jack ultimately helps him euthanise. Whilst I personally am on the side of someone being able to choose if they want to die in certain circumstances, this is where Torchwood's bleak approach to life is almost too grim to bear. John was in his late 40s. He had plenty of life left to live. He wasn't ill. He wasn't going to die. Jack should have tried harder to show the guy that the grief will dissipate and he could have led a full life. Instead, Jack helps him die. Oh, he pays lip service to help him. He tells John that death leads to nothing, no afterlife, no joy, just black. But John still wants to kill himself. And instead of trying to help or getting him help, Jack gives in and just sits with him while he commits suicide. Jack's made some terrible decisions in this show, but I felt this was one of the worst. The surprising part of the story is Owen, whose relationship with Diane actually affects him, and she's the one who ditches him, choosing to fly back into the sky to see if the rift that sent them here is accessible so she can return home. Obviously, none of this is new. The idea of time-displaced people goes back to the H.G. Wells story, The Sleeper Awakes, and any genre TV fan of long-standing can no doubt reel off a handful of these without thinking about it. Still, Torchwood's take on it is a mature look at the subject, with even the elements I disliked being well handled. Combat is written by Noel Clarke, who played Mickey Smith in the Eccleston Tennant run on Doctor Who, and has had a really good career as a writer-director as well as an actor since being in the series. In this episode, Clark tackles white male malaise, doing a version of Fight Club, whereby Owen, already low and miserable after the events of last episode, goes undercover to find a secret society of men engaging in burnicle brawls, with Weevils, the alien beastie teen Torchwood captured in episode one. Sadly, it's more of the same bollocks about how we're all dispossessed nowadays and boo-hoo poor us. Look, if hitting something is the only way you can feel like a man, take up boxing or rugby. Stop whining because you're not allowed to beat up your wife anymore. Hell, I play squash. That's a really fast and aggressive game. Do that. Just stop moaning about how hard it is to be a man nowadays whilst you're slathering yourself in Elemis men's skincare products and having your ball sack waxed. Elsewhere, this just makes Owen even more miserable, even though Torchwood does give him a purpose, and Gwen falls further and further into the seductive life of Torchwood, neglecting her boyfriend Reese and generally screwing up royally. The penultimate episode of the season, Captain Jack Harkness, by Catherine Dragana, is more time-rift shenanigans, with Jack and Tosh investigating a mysterious ballroom from which emanates 1940s music. Their investigations cause them to transfer back in time to 1941, where they meet the original Captain Jack Harkness. Only Gwen, Ianto and Owen can get them back, thanks to clues left through time by Tosh, but they have very different ways of achieving this goal. There's something telling about the fact that the only person Jack can really fall in love with is himself. The real Captain Jack, from whom ours took his name, is also a captain in the US Air Force and is also a man struggling with his sexuality. And Torchwood sees two men taking to the dance floor long before Strictly Come Dancing would receive some controversy for the same thing. It's one thing to be out in 1941 and be treated like a leper. It's another to still have this same outmoded viewpoint today. People again complain about how woke this stuff is, but... It's giving a voice to people who've been silenced for years. 
And Captain Jack Harness is a lovely and rather sweet ode to being allowed to be yourself. Naysayers be damned. Elsewhere, the cracks are starting to show in the team, with Owen angry over Diane and the events of the last episode, Gwen regarding him with loathing, and Dianto preventing him from opening the rift to get Diane back. Owen claims this is to get the team back, but it's really to try and locate Diane, an ulterior motive that leads to Ianto shooting Owen to get him to stop. This really felt lacking, as Ianto and Owen haven't really had anything to do with each other, although anything that wipes the smug look off Owen's face is to be encouraged. I applaud the show's bravery once again in having a completely irredeemable bastard as a character, but he doesn't have proof worrying. Gwen's research has her undercover the caretaker of the ballroom, a man who was also present with Tosh and Jack in 1941, a man named Billis Manger, and he carries over to the season finale end of days. Captain Jack Harkness just about gets by on the strength of the A-plot and the characters and actors, but there's an awful lot of holes in some of the time travel stuff. You'll all have your own favourites, I'm sure, but mine is that Tosh can apparently gouge a large cut in the palm of her hands with a coffee tin. Health and safety would have a field day with that nowadays. End of Days by Chris Chibnall closes the season with an apocalyptian bang. Or tries to. Owen's faffing about with the riff last episode leads to all kinds of weirdness falling through, including Abaddon. Abaddon, Abaddon. <laughs> what he's got that? What a terrible name. Anyway, he's son of the demon who last appeared in the Doctor Who story, The Satan Pit. Abaddon, oh dear, sucks the life out of anyone near him but sucking off Jack. Maybe too much for the beast to handle. Yes, I really did, did say that. <laughs> Will Jack's immortality be enough to kill the beast and save his own life? End of Days feels very familiar to anyone who sat through the half dozen or so episodes of Buffy with a Hellmouth threat to engulf all of Sunnydale. It's a rather typical edge-of-the-seat stuff with the cracks in Team Torchwood finally showing and some excellent acting by Eve Miles when Reese, her boyfriend, is killed. There are some really good thematic ideas here. Jack's death wish plays into the finale, paying off some elements throughout the show. Owen's toxicity leads into shooting Jack in the head, essentially the same as what Susie did in episode one, and the idea that Torchwood is not an entirely positive part of their lives. Sadly, the resultant episode, though, is messy. The budget means the drama never really takes flight. Jack essentially fights a shadow in the climax. It's not really clear exactly what's going on, and we never really feel the effects of the rift on Cardiff. Some shots of people walking down the street, shaking from side to side, and then them lying on the floor dead aren't terribly convincing. I wasn't overly sure what Billis Manger's role in all this was. The series also concludes on a mini cliffhanger, as Jack buggers off when he hears the sound of the TARDIS, which obviously leads into the Utopia episode of Doctor Who. Ultimately, though, End of Day sums up Torchwood. A lot of good ideas, interesting characters, and very good actors trapped in some occasional schlock and B-grade science fiction. Now, I like B-grade science fiction, and when the show concentrated on characters dealing with the weird and the wonderful, it excelled. There are a number of good episodes in Torchwood first season, but the nihilistic and bleak tone it strikes, its constant focus on how life is ultimately meaningless, and the sheer number of miserable and unpleasant characters means it's sometimes really difficult to watch. Tosh is always whining, Gwen is falling down a pit of despair, Ianto is a nobody, and Owen is just a fucking nasty piece of work. 
Amidst all of this is Jack Harkness, joyous bon vivant in Doctor Who, here reduced to moping around and wishing he could die. Yes, the show is more adult. Yes, the show is darker. But if I wanted constant misery, I'd watch EastEnders. There's very little joy in Torchwood's first series. It's bleak misery porn. It's got a decent, if wholly unoriginal, setup, though, that could work if maybe Tosh were just a little happier. Like Willow, maybe, in Buffy. Someone who took some measure of pleasure in her life. Maybe if Ianto was funnier, as Gareth David Lloyd has a good way with the one-liner. Hell, if Jack himself looked like he was having any fucking fun at all, Torchwood would have been easier to burr. In weekly instalments, I remember this being tolerable. Binging it maybe want to slip my wrists. I do like the show, though, and I remember it getting much better. As it's all now available on BBC iPlayer, as Auntie B puts loads of their old catalogue on demand to entertain us in the dark days ahead of isolation, I will continue to watch. After all, watching other people's misery helps us cope better with our own. Torchwood. Outside the government, beyond the police. Tracking down alien life on Earth and arming the human race against the future. The 21st century is when everything changes. And you've got to be ready. Let's check out the email section of the show, should we? I've got a couple of emails, which is always lovely. Peter Zellner's emailed in with 132 feedback. I presume that's episode 132. I'm not sure. Hello, Mr. Leyland. Hello, Peter. Thank you for covering Spider-Man Life Story. Since then, I have bought and enjoyed it, as well as Craven's Last Hunt. I decided to ask the Michael Bailey of Spider-Man were to continue my journey. I'm not super big into angsty teenage Peter Parker, as a once angsty teenager named Peter. One trip through high school is enough. I am, however, fascinated by adult Peter, fighting through everyday problems, as well as supervillains. It makes the everyday problems of being an adult stock boy manageable, because no matter how bad my day is going, the Green Goblin isn't going to try and make me believe I'm a clone. Your friend in time, Peter. Oh, well. Uh, And I did email Peter back with this selection that you lovely listener may also wish to partake in if you want more adult Peter. If you want more mature, you, you can't go wrong with Roger Stern and John Romita Jr.'s run from Amazing Spider-Man 224 through 252. David Michelini and Todd McFarlane's runs an awful lot of fun, Amazing Spider-Man 298 through 328. J. Michael Straczynski and John Romita Jr.'s run, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Issue 30 to Issue 408. The latter isn't really 500 issues. With Issue 500, Marvel went back to the original number. Notice where I finished the... As far as I'm concerned, that's where the Straczynski run ended, when John Romita Jr. left. And if you tell me differently, you're wrong. Sorry, you just are. Uh, J.M. DeMatteis and Sal Buscema had an excellent psychological run on Spectacular Spider-Man 178 through 200. But uh, that's never been traded and it does not appear to be on Comicsology. That's, that's a good place to start. 
if you want to go for more, I have other recommendations for later after you've after you've done that. But thank you for emailing in with your question, Peter. It was lovely to hear from you. Uh, episode 142, ASM 88 through 93 by Olivia Villar. Hey, Andy. Hello, Olivia. I enjoy The Palace, especially when you do an episode devoted to the amazing Spider-Man. While I love most eras of Spidey, the Bronze Age era is very enjoyable for me, so I'm glad you are delving into that period currently. Issues 88 through 90, as we Spidey fans know, were the last Doctor Octopus appearances written by Stan. The next time Octopus appears is in issue 112, and with Jerry Conway as the new writer. Of course, Jerry takes Octopus in an interesting direction during his run. I can't help but think that had Ditko stayed all the way through 1970 as the book's plotter and artist, Peter's reasons for not participating in the protest would have been different, i.e. ASM 38. The scene in issue 89 where Jameson wants Robbie to do something about Spider-Man seemed lazy and reminds me of people whom I have known in life that are annoyingly overly dependent on certain people. You're right. What the hell was Robbie supposed to do? It's too bad that Gwen not only left NYC to see her aunt and uncle, but also because of that GMS retcon in Sins. Yeah, yeah, swear words. Still to this day, that GMS story arc was not well thought out continuity-wise. In issue 92, Iceman appears during a time when he quit the X-Men in Burns' X-Men The Hidden Years, so that worked organically when he says that he's been out of action from the X-Men in issue 92. After the Prowl's appearance in issue 93, he doesn't show up in a Spider-Man title again until Spectacular Spider-Man 47, which introduced a Prowler whose identity is someone who appeared during Ditko's last 10 issues on Amazing. Can't wait for the next five or six issues of Amazing Spider-Man that you spotlight, and you may be spotlighting issue 100. Again, I enjoy listening to the podcast and keep up the great work, Olivia Villar. Well, thank you, Olivia. I'm glad that uh, long-time Spidey fans very much enjoy the show. As I've mentioned before, I'm always a little bit worried about having released them as under the, the umbrella of Palace. I feel that maybe long-term Spider-Man fans aren't hearing them. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they don't want to hear to me waffle, I don't know. But if you know any other long-term Spider fans that I don't know that you think may enjoy my inane ramblings, plug them in. I rely on word of mouth for this show. I don't even have a profile trailer for it, which I should do. For those that cur, I have a tentative plan of what I want to do with with Spider-Man in the future. I've been toying with the idea of what to do once I reach a certain point. Because an awful lot of the stuff, the key stories, I covered on Hey Kids Comics with my son Michael. So you may want to go and check those out if you want to hear what we thought of The Night Gwen Stacy Died and The Clone Saga. All of that was covered over on Hey Kids. So my current plan is to... And again, these won't be consecutive. I don't know when they're going to land. But what I've penciled in is to do Spider-Man issues 94 through 100. Uh, probably be the next episode. Um, obviously, I won't be given a lot of coverage for Amazing Spider-Man 99 because I've already done that. So if you want to go back and listen to that episode, maybe I should just drop it in to that show. You know, like they used to do on old television shows, like flashbacks. Um, bottle clip shows. Maybe I should do that, see if anyone even notices. Uh, Then I'm going to do issue 101 through 104. Then issue 105 through 110, which takes us to the end of Stan Lee's run on the book. Now, obviously, there's a bit of Roy Thomas in there, but he carries on the story and plot threads that Stan left when he left with issue 100. And then with issue 110, I will probably leap straight to the Roger Stern run over in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 43, and go from there. And again, I've mapped out what the episodes are, roughly, and what issues they'll cover. But that's 
two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight episodes in total. So that's that's a long way down the line when you consider the other stuff that I may want to talk about as well. But it's planned. So hopefully I will get there, you know, now that we have a little bit of uh, spur time, thanks to being isolated. We'll see what happens. But thank you for emailing in. Our final email tonight from Professor Alan. Oh, hey, Alan. Andrew. I was enjoying a quiet weekday at home recently and was just skimming through the channel offerings on the TV and what did I find just two minutes before it was scheduled to air? An episode of Alias Smith and Jones. I'd never watched an episode before and possibly had never heard of it until you started cheerleading for the show on the palace. And you know what? It was a pretty fun episode, all about horse racing and gambling and all the shenanigans that arise from horse racing and gambling. I just watched that one episode, but I found it solid entertainment. Good recommendation. Keep up the good work. Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Darkness to Light. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I love Ailey Smith & Jones. The thing with Ailey Smith & Jones as well, it's not dated. Because it's a cowboy film. Film. A cowboy series. Uh, even though it was made in 1970 through 1973, I believe. it's It still holds up today because it's, it's not dated very much. Well, apart from Pete Duell's sideburns. I suppose. Okay, thank you very much for emailing in, you three lovely gentlemen. Alistair Jakes and Mitchell Sanders have emailed in, but as usual, I've got to go and do other stuff. Um, this is already at an hour, which I think is a nice length for these things, in between 45 minutes and an hour. It's long enough to listen to me, I think. So I will be gone. Um, on a more serious note, I hope if you find yourselves in isolation, or confined to barracks, or whatever i hope that you're all doing okay be safe be careful be kind and we will get through this and i'll see you all in the future and it is going to be okay eventually hopefully goodbye